Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and thanks for joining me. Today's guest is John Chambers. He's a proud Protestant who witnessed some of the worst brutality growing up in Belfast during the Troubles. Butchered and murdered Catholics were often just dumped outside his house. People from his school were getting kneecapped. Death and violence was everywhere. He himself was throwing petrol bombs before he was even a teenager. And Just wait till you hear the story about his mother. His book, A Belfast Child, is out now. Well, it's been described as a tale of divided loyalties, dark secrets, and the scars left by hatred and violence on a proud city, but also a tale of hope, healing, and ultimate redemption for a family caught in the rising tide of the troubles. The author of A Belfast Child joins me now. John Chambers, how are you, mate? I'm good, Andy. Thank you. Nice nice to uh, chat with you. No worries. You were mentioning before we got started that you're feeling a little bit nervous, aren't you? I am, yeah. <laughs> There's nothing to be nervous about. Nothing to be nervous about. You've been through the ringer in your life, and I'm just I'm looking forward to having a chat to you about it because um, some of the stuff that you've had to endure um, and you've come out the other end um, is just phenomenal. And in your book, the way you detail it, the way you tell the story is is incredible. So I congratulate you from that uh, for that right off the bat. There are a few main themes for me. There's the political and religious situation, um, the heartbreaking stories surrounding both your parents, and then, of course, your development as a person and accepting people of the other religion um, or tribe, almost, as you as you put it. Firstly, um, for, for anyone listening that hasn't got a clue about the troubles, I'm talking about people on the other side of the world that might be listening to this, can you describe what the troubles were and and describe the political and religious situation that, that you grew up in? Um, well, um, the Northern Ireland Troubles basically uh, were based on uh, religion and political, political issues. Um, I mean, Northern Ireland was part of the UK, and um, after partition, um, the, the, the countries of the North became, uh, remained part of the UK, and the other countries uh, became, the 26 countries became Southern Ireland. And um, it was a Protestant-run state, and Catholics always thought they were second-class citizens in a Protestant-run state with the, you know, uh, Protestant paramilitaries, you know, <laughs> leading the way. So there's always been a lot of suspicion and mistrust between the two communities. Um, having said that, um, it, it kind of there was an uneasy peace between them until 1969, when the civil rights marches began. And um, that, that made a lot of uh, Protestants nervous and suspicious because the IRA had started infiltrating the civil rights campaign uh, and the various riots. And um, around 69, it just exploded and uh, um, it descended into 30 years of political and sectarian hell. Mm. So where you were living, there were, were you living with Catholics or were you living with Protestants in, in the same communities or was it completely separate? It, it was very tribal back in the 19, late 60s and 70s. And where we, when my mum and dad uh, first met, they met in the late 50s. 
Um, Protestant Catholics were just about able to live side by side then, even though there was a lot of suspicion and mistrust between the two communities. Um, but that changed in 69. And um, where we actually lived, uh, the street was divided. One half was Catholic and one half was Protestant. And people frowned on mixed marriages. It was a taboo subject. It was just something that wasn't done, especially in, you know, the uh, ghettos of Belfast and Londonderry. And um, so we grew up uh, originally, uh, you know, with my mum's uh, Catholic family uh, while we were young. You know, we we mixed with uh, both of them. Um, but there was um, a lot of, as I said, a lot of suspicion and trust between the two communities. And um, that that uh, sort of uh, led the way into 69 and uh, the 1970 when the troubles kicked off and um, it sent it into hell, as I say. What part of the divide did you grow up on? You mentioned just then that you were growing up around Catholics. Yeah, yeah. When your mum was around, like what what talk me through the part of the divide that you found yourself on. Um, well, my dad was a loyalist and a Protestant, and my mum was a Catholic and a nationalist. Uh, they're so diametrically opposed. It's, it's, it's outrageous. But when they first married, you know, uh, mixed marriages were able to take, take, take place. And um, so we grew up in the originally um, mixing with our Catholic relatives, even though we were brought up, being brought up as Protestants. So, so, you, so you grew up as... Um as Protestants, but mixing with Catholics? Um, only in our early years. I, I was three uh, when my parents separated. But in the beginning, um, um, yeah, we mixed with our Catholic relatives as much as we did our Protestant relatives. Uh, and then when my parents separated, um, they moved up to Glencairn, which is an ultra-loyalist estate. And um, from that point onwards, we had nothing to do with our Catholic relatives, or we never mixed mm. with Catholics. I didn't uh, socialise and meet Catholics on a social level until I was uh, in my late teens. Well, um, we'll get we'll get to that later on in the interview, but I, I just want to focus on um, some of the things that you noticed when you were younger, some of the um, events that took place uh, that showed you that there was a, a public divide. I think I read in your book there was a public tarring. Um, that was a tarring and feathering. That was when I was living up in Glencairn. Um, well, obviously, because of the political situation, um, the two tribes were kind of at war with each other. And where we lived, it was um, Grand Kern, it was an ultra-loyalist estate. And uh, we couldn't mix with Catholics, um, you know what I mean? It was frowned upon. And uh, one day, me and my cousin and brother were playing, and um, we heard a commotion. And we went over to the local shops, and a girl was tied to a lamppost. And um, there were lots of paramilitaries around her, and she was tarred and feathered. Uh, basically, she had been caught going with a Catholic boy, and that was uh, against the rules and regulations, you know, the code of conduct that we all lived by back then. And um, she was tarred and feathered, so they cut her hair off, and they poured paint all over her, and put a sign around her neck saying, Fenian lover, or Teig lover, which is a uh, derogative term for a Catholic. But such was, such was life back then that, you know, that was pretty normal for us, uh, although it was brutal. And um, I remember watching it happen. And um, at the time, you know, I was like with, around my peers. I thought and acted the same as, as, as they all did. And I was appalled that she was going with the Catholics. It, such was the divide between our two people. There was no room for any empathy or anything. Um, but then we watched her uh, get cut down and she, she walked home and um, as children we, we used to play cowboy and Indians and she was leaving red footprints so we followed the red footprints all the way to her house 
Uh, and it was sad because uh, she, I remember her going into uh, her front door and um, she looked devastated. You know, she'd been through such a horrendous event wow. and she was looking in the mirror. And at that point, I, I just thought to myself, you know, this isn't right. You know, imagine like her having to go through that. And a part of me, you know, that wasn't screaming, feigning lover or, or F and take, you know, was thinking, what, what has she actually done to deserve this kind of treatment? Uh, and that was kind of my introduction to the brutal reality of living in a loyalist council estate. Wow. Were there other incidents like that where there was public humiliation? Did it happen very often? Uh, it mainly happened in the Republican areas. Um, IRA and uh, other Republican groups uh, would often do it to women if they were caught going with soldiers or army personnel. It was pretty rare in Protestant areas. I mean, that was the only time I ever witnessed that uh, growing up where I did. Um, yeah. Obviously, there were other stuff going on, people being kneecapped, this, that, and the other. But um, in regards to tarring and feathering, uh, that was the only uh, incident I ever uh, witnessed there. But having said that, it was perfectly normal. <laughs> and it's part of our everyday life because it was a violent, ultra-loyalist community we lived in. And um, it was just part and parcel of living where I did and where I did, uh, when I did. You just mentioned kneecapping. Can you tell me what that involved? Because uh, this is quite... <laughs> you talk about this a lot in your book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, kneecapping, the paramilitaries uh, of all persuasions, Catholic and Protestant, um, uh, apart from your paramilitaries, um, they kind of place the areas we live in. They look after the local community and uh, also um, they, they show punishments. And normally that's for boys or hoods, young boys getting into trouble, you know, causing uh, trouble in the local area or breaking into people's houses or joyriding. And um, the punishments vary, but you can get a beating, which is bad, including with baseball bats. Or you can be kneecapped, depending on um, you know your crime, how, how much you've upset them or who you've upset. Uh, a kneecapping, it's normally applied to the uh, uh, the knees, and they shoot you on the knees, so they do, uh, through the knees. And depending where they shoot you, sometimes they shoot you down the calf, and that's not too bad because you can recover from that. But if they do you on the knee, you could be crippled for the rest of your life. Uh, we all knew boys would be kneecapped, and um, it was once again, it was just uh, the brutal reality of where I lived at the time. And some of the boys that were in kneecap, you know, they might be going on holiday or they'd had a, a bought a new pair of jeans or whatever, and they'd say to the shooter, can you wait until I've changed my treasures or, or come back from holiday before you shoot me because they didn't want their treasures ruined. So uh, all the all the, uh, the hoods and the bad boys, you know, they're always uh, nervous about the knock on the door and get up and see such and such because you're going to be punished. Um, we never went to the police. You know, the paramilitaries controlled every aspect of our daily lives. So... If you had a problem, we never found the police. Uh, the local people never found the police. Um, they went to the paramilitaries and they sorted it out, uh, often in a very brutal fashion. Did you ever see anyone get kneecapped? Um, I seen a boy just after he'd been kneecapped. Um, me and my brother and cousin were walking past, uh, past a block of flats uh, in the middle of Lancome. We heard some shots and we went in and we seen the guys running away who shot him. We knew them, so we did, obviously, because everyone knows everyone else in that kind of uh, uh, state. And um, he was on the ground, he'd be shot through the knees and there was blood everywhere and he was screwing his head off. But I was about nine or ten at the time and I knew him and he was a little bastard. So I thought he got what he deserved, you know what I mean? Wow. There was no sympathy for me. Uh, obviously, as I grew older, you know, I started to realize that's, that's just wrong. But at the time, it was uh, uh, just daily life for us. There was a time when you thought you were going to get kneecapped, wasn't there? Um, yeah, I, I was a little bugger uh, when I was going through my teenage years. Me and my mates, uh, we used to get into all sorts of trouble. And my life was chaos at the time, you know, and I was just, uh, due to events that happened in my early life, you know, I was running wild and I was uh, on the verge of becoming a hood. I mean, as I said in the book, uh, 
if I hadn't left Belfast, I'd probably end up dead in jail or or, or, uh, or, or on the dove for the rest of my life. But uh, my friends used to steal cars and joyriders, which is a very dangerous occupation, um, especially in Belfast, because a lot of people were shot uh, during the troubles, crashing into the army barricades or police barricades, or basically the police chasing them or the army chasing them and shooting them. And one day my friend stole a car in Belfast city centre, and I was always the passenger, even though I didn't drive at the time, uh, I didn't want to be left out, you know, so when they all stole a car, I'd jump in with them in the back. And uh, it, they, they, they brought up the grand car, you know, uh, uh, Lewis Hamilton driving up, uh, doing all the handbrake funds, this, that and the other. And when we got up the grand car, and, uh, they, they slammed on the brakes and the, the car skidded around and smacked bang into a car. And um, the initial shock, you know, we all thought, oh, we're all right, you know, we got out. And then we realised that the car that we crashed into belonged to a top UDA man. Uh, a UDA man. What's a, what's a UDA man? Uh, UDA is the Ulster Defence Organisation. Um, right, so he's a paramilitary. He's a paramilitary, yeah. But and, and this was the top guy in the paramilitary that do the kneecapping. Yeah, you have no sympathy for hoods like us, you know what I mean? And uh, he was a top uh, commander in the UDA. Uh, so we all got out of the car and we run off, so we did, but uh, we were that night I didn't sleep at all because I knew the next day the rap was going to come at the door, the knock was going to come at the door. Uh, it was just, you know, it's such a small tribal environment that everyone knew everyone. And, um, of course, the next day we got a knock and someone said, you've got to go up to the community centre to see such and such. Uh, so we went all up there, and uh, the guy was there, and he was raging. He was, <laughs> he, uh, I thought he was going to shoot us there and then, and... Um, he pulled out a gun so he did, and we all thought we were going to be kneecapped. We were terrified. And I already had a wonky leg, so I was thinking to myself, my God, if he shoots me, I'm, going, I'm never going to walk again, you know. Um, but because uh, we were well known to him, and I think he actually took pity on us, so he did, uh, because he realized, you know, um, we were just kids and we were messing about. And uh, thankfully, he didn't shoot us that day, but uh, he made us go and wash his car. So for the next couple of weeks, he got a new car. For the next couple of weeks, we had to go up <laughs> outside his house. Uh, and watch his car while he stood, stood by watching us, you know, it was very nerve-wracking, but it was much better than losing our kneecaps. But the reality was, you know, we, we thought that we we're going to get shot here, and we'd all kind of braced ourselves for either for a, a beating, and as I say, a beating's bad, you know what I mean, but kneecapping is worse, you know what I mean? I mean, they do it in the arms too, or the legs, but um, uh, we were very, very lucky. God must have been smiling on us that day because we got a bye ball, thank God. Wow, very lucky. You mentioned the paramilitaries, but there were also um, some pretty scary gangs that you mention in your book. Yeah. Um, the the Shankill Butchers, for for one, are probably yep. the most infamous. And you came across some of their early handiwork, didn't you? Um, yeah, where I lived on Fourth Ever Road, um, it was just down from the community centre. Um, the Butchers were a member of UVF, which is Ulster Volunteer Force. And um, the Butchers... So Protestant. Uh, Protestant, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, they, they, they operated in and around... The Shanko Butchers uh, came from the Shanko Road, the famous Shanko Road, and they got their name because they used knives to carve people up. And um, they were boogeymen. We were all terrified of them. Even uh, Obviously, the Catholic community were a lot more nervous of them because they just drive. In Belfast, we had black taxis, like London black taxis, and they'd done like bus routes. So you had uh, the loyalist paramilitaries would do the routes to the loyalist areas, and the Republicans would do the routes to the Republican areas. But you couldn't tell, you know, just looking at the car, if it was a Protestant or a loyalist car or driver. Um, and they used to use a black taxi to pick up the victims. So they'd get a black taxi and they'd go onto the Falls Road or down the town, you know, and um, 
if, if, like it, it, depending on you know where you are, um, if you're walking in a particular area of Belfast City Centre, they, they they came to the conclusion that you'd be a Catholic and um, you'd wave the taxi down, thinking you know I'll get a taxi home, and next thing you'd be in, they'd close the door and start beating beating the hell out of you. Uh, and then they'd bring them up to the Shankle or up to Glencar and, and they'd kill them, often very brutally with knives. And um, it was very, very brutal. Um, but they dumped some of their bodies right beside where I lived in Glencairn. And one of the boys, Stephen McCann, um, uh, he was a young fella. And um, for some reason, that had a profound fact on me because he was so innocent, you know, and they butchered him, you know, it was horrendous. And it was his body that we seen outside the community centre. Um, we were going to school one day, and um, it was early in the morning, and all the police and army were all gathered around the community centre, and there was a massive big presence, so we knew that something had gone on. And as we got closer, um, <clears throat> pardon me, as we got closer, we noticed a body lying behind the community centre. Uh, it was covered, but we could see a tuft of hair, and there was blood everywhere. And it turned out this was um, one of the victims, the Shango Butchers, who had been picked up, an innocent guy, gone home, and... Uh, Horrendous, he had been picked up and mutilated and thrown behind the community centre. Uh, and then there was another one just facing the community centre in the link, which is just uh, crossing the community centre. Uh, and our house was the first house, you know, uh, beside the community centre, so we were right beside it. Uh, I was terrified of the butchers, even though I was a Protestant. Um, these were, like, they killed Protestants too, you know. Um, the, their leader, Lanny Murphy, he was a psychopath. He enjoyed killing for killing's sake. And um, on dark winter's nights, when I used to play at the bottom of Glencairn, when I was going home at night, if I heard the sound of a diesel, a taxi coming up behind me, I used to be terrified because I used to think it was the butchers. I used to pick up a stick. I was only 12 or 11, you know what I mean, and then run and hide behind a bush or a car. It used to terrify me. I used to have nightmares about them. Um, and, you know, and even lying in bed at night, because we lived beside the community centre, when I ever heard a taxi, I used to think, my God, they're dumping another body there or they're killing someone else. So it was pretty horrendous. Um, they were caught eventually and, um, you know, uh, Lanny Murphy was killed also in Glencairn, just just from around from where I live. You came across that as well, didn't you? I did. I was, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, it's ironic that I seen his victims and I, and him when he was killed. Um, he he'd gone to jail and he would spent a lot of time in jail for other offences, not for the Shankle Butcher offences. And he had come out, and the Lord's paramilitaries thought he was going to behave himself. He had upset a lot of people, not just Republicans, um, but also loyalists. There was a lot of people, you know, out to get him, and it was almost inevitable that eventually someone would get him. This and, is the leader of the Shankill Butchers, yeah, right? Danny Murphy, yeah, yeah, uh, absolute psychopath. Um, but he had a girlfriend up in Glencairn, and I was used to seeing him in and around Glencairn and down the Shankill, and. Uh, I can't remember what year it was now, but I was lying in my uh, bed. I was staying up in Glencairn in a flat, and I heard these shots, and I got out, and I looked out the window, and I seen all these people gathered around a car. Uh, and immediately I knew someone had been killed. I didn't know it was a Catholic, a Protestant, an army guy, or a police guy, but I just knew someone had just been uh, taken out. And um, I, I threw on some clothes, and um, I went out, and I, there was crowds gathering there. Uh, and then I got talking to this guy, and he said, it's Murphy. And I said, you're joking me, Lenny Murphy? He said, yeah, it's him. He's dead in the car. I said, no way. And he said, yeah. And we all thought it was a provy hit, the, the IRA. Provies is the term we use for the IRA. I'd hit him. Um, but, yeah, he was laying in the car, and he was dead. And like, all I could think was good riddance, you know what I mean? Because I didn't know enough for him. And, um, but um, later on, it, there were rumours that the IRA, uh, the Republicans and the Loyalist paramilitaries had joined forces to get rid of a mutual problem. 
Uh, them rumours persist until today because he, had, he it pissed off so many people, you know. Mm. And he was bringing shame on the Lord of Spire Milkies because um, I, I know they were out doing all the terrorist activities and that, but just the way he was killing people and um, dumping their bodies and it killed, it, it'd uh, been involved in various feuds with different UVF gangs and it killed some Protestants too and that. Even the church I used to attend to, uh, they killed a Protestant guy there and threw him behind there. So um, all I could think about was good riddance, you know. It's one less psycho in the world, you know what I mean? But um, yeah, yeah, um, that was that was pretty horrendous. So then you didn't have to worry about the sound of a taxi. diesel taxi no. anymore? <laughs> no, but yeah. I used to have nightmares about it. Uh, I was only a kid and... Uh, at the time, you know, I, I knew that I was part Catholic, so in, subconsciously I was thinking to myself, good God, maybe he knows I'm a Catholic, he's going to chill me from my bed and kill me, you know. Uh, I know that sounds bizarre, but uh, that was just the time and the place we lived in, and uh, he was a real monster, a bogeyman. Did you ever come close to joining a, a gang or anything similar? Because I know you joined up the with the UDA later on, didn't you? But Was it ever a, a stage where you thought, maybe I'll be better off in a gang and, you know, Given the given the um, situation around, you know, losing your father and your mother, you, you know, looking for somewhere to almost feel like a part of a, a family or anything uh, like that. Uh, well, I got into the mod movement. Um, uh, I mean, most of the gangs in Northern Ireland are political, but the mod movement was a mod movement. Uh, who were um, I don't know if you're familiar with mods, are you? Yeah, do you know what? I read your whole book and I loved it, <laughs> but I just couldn't get my head around this mod movement. Yeah, like, what? What was that? Was it just where you you dressed well and you put makeup on, or <laughs> no, I mean, it sounded like it sounded like a whole group of Michael Jacksons running around the place. <laughs> Actually, I knew a guy. He was in the paramilitary, so he was an absolute psychopath. But he loved doing the moonwalk, <laughs> and he used to, we used to go to clubs. He'd get up and do these Michael Jackson impressions, and if you didn't laugh, he was liable to shoot you. <laughs> so it was really funny seeing this psycho doing all the Michael Jackson stuff. Uh, but the mod movement, when I got into the mod movement, I mean, the mod was, uh, throw back to the 60s, we were into Small Faces, The Who, uh, all those 60s bands, so we dressed in 60s-style clothing and we listened to 60s-style music. Um, you had the skinheads and the punks and that, but I was more into the mod movement and we we dressed, uh, we, we, we rode Vespas and Lombrettas. Um, I, I started getting into the mod movement when I was about 14, 15, and mm. um, that that, was, that kind of opened up a whole new world to me because prior to that, I hadn't mixed with any Catholics on social level, apart from what I'd, uh, you know, Catholics I'd met, met in hospital and that. Um, uh, they were completely alien to me, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, that's no different from anyone else who grew up in a loyalist or Republican state. We just didn't mix with each other, you know? So let's skip back now and, and talk about your parents. Mm -hmm. You mentioned it at the start of the interview. Um, tell me about this situation. And given what you've told me already about the fierce divide, like the absolute tribalism, the sectarianism but between Catholics and Protestants, yeah. tell me about your parents. Um, well, when my parents first met, um, as, as I say, they were living down on Governor Road, and that was one of the areas where Catholics and Protestants lived together. Um, that was the change over the, over the coming years. Um, but back then, um, it was very taboo for mixed marriages to take place. 
Um, I know that sounds very, very tribal, and, uh, but back then you just didn't because it was too much hassle and the neighbours gossip it and no one, no one. Mixed marriages were very rare, basically. They're more common now, but back then they weren't. Mm, so it's just my, the way it was. Yeah, it was just the way it was. And um, it's hard to believe it was part of, this was all happening part of the UK, but it's just the madness that we lived through. Um, but my mum and dad, they got together, so they did in the late 50s. And um, eventually they fell in love and they got married and they had some children, uh, four children. And I, I'm the third um, of, of four. And um, when I was born in 1966, I mean, the, the troubles were starting to bubble in the background. The UVF, which is a loyalist paramilitary group, had killed a few Catholics and that. Um, but nothing compared to what was going to happen within the coming years. And... Um, by 69, when the uh, the civil rights movement uh, kicked off, uh, it was at boiling point, the trust between the Catholic and Protestants in Belfast. Uh, where we lived with our parents, there was riots every night. You know, um, we were right on the front line and we could hear riots going outside, patrol bombs, uh, gunshots. I remember hiding under my bed as a three, four-year-old, terrified because there was mobs running about the street. You know, it was crazy. Belfast was burning. And essentially, um, my mum, we think she had a nervous breakdown, but I was in and out of hospital at this period, and uh, she stopped visiting me in hospital, so she did. And uh, at the time, I thought, that's a bit strange, but I was in hospital, you know, in and out all the time. And then she brought me and my sister um, over to England, and we were there for a while. And this is the last and only memory I have of my mum as a child. I was in a house. Uh, we were living in uh, Stockwell in London. And um, I have this image of a woman feeding me, but I can't picture her face. All I can see is the silhouette of a woman feeding me. And throughout my life, you know, that used to haunt me, that image, because I wanted to put a face, an image to the face, but I couldn't do it. Um, and then for some reason, she brought us back to Belfast. And then she took my other brother and my sister, uh, and she brought them over to England. Uh, and I was in the hospital at this time. And... Um, by that stage, the marriage had broken down. There uh, was just no going back. And um, my dad went over to England with some of his brothers, and he brought my sister and brother back to Belfast. And um, from that point onwards, our mum disappeared from our lives completely, and uh, she just stopped visiting me in hospital. Her family used to visit me, but my dad and grandparents um, must have told them not to visit me anymore. So from that point onwards, mum disappeared from our lives. And we had no contact whatsoever with any of my mum's family for the rest of my life. And uh, we became uh, uh, pure loyalists, pure Protestants, and uh, went mm. to live uh, with my uh, parent, my dad's family in Glencarn. Given you were a staunch Protestant loyalist, mm. you started to sort of tweak and figure out that your mum was a Catholic yeah. while you were growing up. You started to have inklings that that was the case. Mm -hmm. How did you feel about your mum? Um, well, I thought she was dead. I mean, my grandmother took us up to Glencairn, and two of us, had been, when we were living in Glencairn, two of us had been given Catholic names and christened in the Catholic faith. Uh, I suppose my parents, when they were married, when they married, they thought they'd try and bring us up, you know, uh, embracing both Catholic and Protestant, but that was a futile dream. That was never going to happen. And um, when mum moved, uh, left, and we moved up to Glencairn, um, my grandmother came around one day. Uh, I didn't know where mum was because I was in and out of hospital. She just disappeared. No one explained to me where she was or what had happened to her. Uh, and I used to just think, oh, she's too busy to come and visit me in hospital and that. 
But when we moved up to Glencoe, my my grandmother sat us all down one day and um, basically said, I'm sorry to tell you, but your mum's dead. And we're like, what? Yeah, she died in a car crash. And um, we were just children, so we just accepted that from that point onwards, you know. Um, I was I was only about four or five at the time, and we just accepted that. And um, also, what they had to do was they had to change two of my uh, my brother and my sister's name because they'd been given Catholic names. Uh, and even in Glencar, and having a Catholic name, uh, you know, it could make your life hell. Such was the hatred between the two communities back then. What there. were their names? Um, Jared was my brother's name, and my sister Margaret was Murray. Um, and then they changed them to Margaret and David. Right. Yeah, but yeah. Wow. But if we if we had gone to school with names like that, you'd have been ostracized and picked on and uh and basically my grandparents said, um, you're not to mention your mum again, you're never gonna talk about her, you're never gonna speak about her, she's dead, just let sleeping dogs sleep. Uh and that sounds brutal, you know what I mean? But I suppose what they were trying to do was protect us from the environment we lived in. Um such was the what's the state of Northern Ireland at the time. Um so from that point onwards I just accepted that my mum was dead. And um, I just got on my life because my dad was there and I had a multitude of cousins and aunties and uncles up in Glencairn and my grandparents. Uh, and I was happy, you know, I mean, I didn't, I know this might sound harsh and brutal, but I didn't really miss my mum. And I think that's because I was in hospital so much. So I wasn't there for the breakdown of the marriage and I wasn't used to having her with me 24-7. So when I was told she was dead, um, I was too busy enjoying my childhood uh, back in Glencairn because... Uh, despite all the modest in Glencairn, it was paradise for children. You know, it was on a, a, a beside a massive big park and it had uh, forests, rivers, mountains, streams, and it was a paradise for kids. So I was too busy to miss my mum, and uh, I didn't actually start missing my mum and asking questions about her until my dad died. The whole throughout the whole book, you can feel the confusion that you felt about your mum. Yeah. Tell me about how confusing it was for you growing up when you were trying to piece things together uh well as i said we thought she was dead at first and then um i'd hear my uncles and aunties not having a drink at the weekends and um talking about my mom and that and um even though i thought uh, even though i thought she was dead um I, i started realizing that they were saying she is rather than she was and um, and then one day I heard them, uh, I started to piece this together and uh, started formulating an idea in my head. Maybe she's not dead after all. Um, and then um, one day I heard them talking, saying she was a Catholic. And that, 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 that sort of uh, grounded me. I couldn't believe what I was hearing because I was a proud wee prod growing up in Glencairn. And the thought of having Catholic blood in my body and my, in my veins absolutely appalled me so it did and uh i was mortified obviously i changed as i got older but at the time um it was it was it was uh it, it threw me basically i was absolutely and i didn't want to tell anyone because i was completely ashamed the thought that i had catholic blood running through my veins and also once again if i had told anyone about that um we'd been ostracized and picked on in glen Cairn. um so from that point onwards i gradually started to piece together um bits of conversation here and there uh, and uh, eventually I came to the realisation that A, my mum was alive and she was out there somewhere and B, um, she was a Catholic <laughs> uh, but such was the stigma uh, surrounding my mum uh, we as children, we never discussed her even growing up, you know she was such a stigma in my family uh, my dad's family that um, once my grandmother told us she was dead that was it, there was never any discussion about her she was never mentioned again only bits of conversation that we heard in the background and that uh, and I know they were trying to protect us, you know, um, and uh, I had a great life, you know, and uh, people have said to me, oh, well, are you angry with them for not telling you the truth? And I, 
I say no because they give us the best they could and they were trying to protect us. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Later in life, there was a massive coincidence around your mother mm-hmm. that started to give you some answers. Yeah. Tell me about that. <clears throat> um... Well, as I grew older, I, I started, when I was in my teens, you know, I started really missing my mum, and uh, I needed her in my life, uh, <clears throat> me. and I even went so far as to write to Dear Deirdre in The Sun, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with The Sun. Uh, so Dear Deirdre is some, something that you could write in a letter, um, and it would get published, so if you were looking for someone, you could write in, and they, and they would give you advice on, on how to try and find them. Yeah, it was any sort of problems you were having, you could write in, it's a tabloid in the UK, uh, and I wrote in, I explained the situation. I was very young at the time, and uh, um, I didn't have my mum's name, and I didn't put my name in a letter because I didn't think, you know, to shoot publish it or anything. And uh, a few months later, my brother came running over uh, to the house and said, look at this, our story's in the paper. It's about this Catholic Protestant, uh, Catholic Protestant and uh uh, marriage where they separated and the kids uh, looking for their mum did you write this letter uh, and even then with my brother I was um, ashamed I think and I said no it's nothing to do with me um, and then I started working on a YTS scheme and uh, so I did actually advise me to go to the Salvation Army and that um, but once again because I didn't have my mum's name or anything knew anything about her it, it came to a brick wall uh, and then when I was 16 I started working on a YTS scheme um, youth training program Youth training program. Uh, youth training program, yeah. It was just cheap labour uh, for kids on the dole and that. And can't to try and get you into work. Yeah, try and get us in. Right. Yeah. Uh, and also we had to work with Catholics, uh, so they were trying to uh, get us to uh, sort of get all chummy together and, uh, you know, put all the bricks, bottles and the petrol bombs away. <laughs> um, but when I uh, started working there, I met a, Mur- a Muriel, uh, a Catholic lady, and um, I opened up to her and I told her, told her my story. And she, she, she kind of took me under her wing and she made arrangements for me to meet a Catholic priest. And I brought up to this point, I, I like, uh, it was like an antichrist talking to a priest. I wanted nothing to do with Catholics or, or the religion. But, but by the time I was 16, my attitudes were kind of changing. I did meet the priest and I was humbled by him and he tried, did try to help me. But once again, I was coming up against brick walls because I, I knew nothing about it. And people say, well, why didn't you ask your grandparents or your aunties and uncles? And honestly, I can't answer that question. It was just something that was stopping me from doing that. I didn't want to upset them or be, I'd let them, let them down by, you know, trying to find uh, my mum when um, they'd spent their lives looking after us and caring for us. And then there was a coincidence overseas, wasn't there? 
Um, yeah, that was much later after I'd moved to London. And um, I've been working in London for uh, about five years or so. Uh, I was plodding along. I mean, uh, mum's absence was always a thing in my life. You know, it haunted me. And uh, I had a turbulent uh, time. I, I'd done a lot of drugs and party, and I jumped on the rave scene. I mean, when I arrived from Belfast uh, to London, it was like landing on a different planet, you know what I mean? I was surrounded by beautiful people from all around the world, and they were partying. It was the 80s. The rave scene was happening. And uh, I just jumped into it with feet first and had a party for, <laughs> for 10 years. And done a lot of drugs and had a great, great time. So I was just plodding along. So I was uh, much, of, much of that was just because um, I was haunted with mum's uh, absence. You know, it was just blanking out and trying to escape this and the, the demons in my head, basically. Because I knew my life would never be complete uh, or, or happy without you know her, her in my life. And um, one day I got a call from my sister and she said, Are "You sitting down?" I said, "Yeah." And she goes, you're not going to believe this. And I says, "What?" And apparently an acquaintance of ours had been in America on holiday. And um, it got talking to an Irish couple, Northern Irish couple in a bar. And the lady said, do you, do you know anyone from Shankill and Glencairn? And he said, yeah. And she goes, do you know John Chambers is from? And he goes, yeah. And uh, she, she couldn't believe it. And she turned around and said to him, I think John is my nephew. My sister is his mum. And it just blew, blew his mind. And uh, she wrote a letter, so she did, and brought it all the way back to Belfast. I was in London at the time, and uh, my sister phoned me that day, and she said, "So, so your, so your auntie wrote a letter, yep. and gave it to your friend, yeah, yeah, and your friend brought it back so, yeah. and gave it to your sister, yeah, yeah, yeah." And I, I didn't know she was my auntie. I didn't even know I had aunties on the Catholic side. Uh, but yeah, my sister phoned me and said, you're sitting down. And she goes, I've received a letter. You're not going to believe it. And uh, Philomena said, uh, essentially, basically in the letter, that um, you don't know me. And I hope I, 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 I haven't got the wrong person. But I think you're my, my uh, sister's son. And then she went on to explain and give some details. And um, yeah, it's a one in a billion chance that that was how I was actually reunited with my mum. She left an address on there and an American telephone number. And um, I phoned her. I sat on the number for a couple of days because it was such a monumental thing in my life. I'd searched all my life for this woman. I was about 25 at this time when this uh, came about. And uh, I phoned Philomena in America. I checked out the time difference. And uh, the minute I heard her voice, she started crying. I started crying. It was very, very emotional. And, um, yeah, that was that was uh, the, the, the bizarre coincidence that left a, 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 led to a reunion with my mum. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. That is an amazing story. It is, isn't it? <laughs> are, you, are you okay to talk about your dad? Because in your book, he sounded like a wonderful man. Yeah. He was your hero, wasn't he? He was, yeah. I love my dad. I mean, uh, uh, because I've been in the hospital and I had to wear a caliber uh, for, for, for many years, um, he took time off work. He had work here, there, and everywhere. But he was the center of our universe, all of us. He was a real family man. And um, he always put us first, you know what I mean? Uh, a lot of men, you know, would have just let the women take the kids, but he was never going to let that happen, you know what I mean? It, it was unusual for a man back in the 70s to raise four kids by himself, but he made the choice that he was going to have his kids, you know what I mean? Uh, and um, we loved him beyond words. Um, he was an integral part of uh, Belfast and, sorry, Glencairn community. He started up a, a, bra, a band called the Glencairn Accordion Band, and um, I don't know if your, your listeners will be familiar with the 12th of July and the Orange Marches and the bands that take place. 
I I had an idea about it vaguely, but very um, so. Twelfth of July, the Orange Men, which are Protestants, right? Yeah. You guys would march through Belfast yeah. from all different areas, yeah. and so the night before, you'd have the bonfires and you'd put effigies of the Pope on them and be shouting "Death to the Pope," that kind of thing. It was a, it was a lot harsher than that sometimes, but yeah. Really? What else did you chant? Uh, no surrender, and uh, we used to sing songs like "Hooray, hooray! It's a holly, holly day. Two popes gone, and the queen, queen lives on. It's a holly, holly day. Death to Fenians, wow. no surrender." Um, it was just uh, uh, part of our culture when we were growing up. You know, it's part of the loyalist culture to have bonfires on the eleventh uh, night, and that's to celebrate the Battle of Boyne uh, in sixteen ninety, uh, when the Protestant King uh, Billy uh, beat uh, Catholic King James in, in, in the Battle of Boyne. And we've celebrated that, and it's uh, the most important day in the calendar for the loyalist population of Northern Ireland. And then the 12th of July is when the bands from all over Northern Ireland march to the field or other areas, um, once again, just to commemorate. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it was a great time. My dad, um, he, he, he started the band in Glencairn and uh, was a big part of the community of, of, of uh, Glencairn. And then he passed away, and your life, it's fair to say, spiralled, didn't it? Um, yeah, when he passed away, uh, um, we knew he was ill, uh, but we didn't know how ill he was because uh, he kind of kept it from us. And how old were you when he passed away? I was 10 when he passed away. Yeah, yeah. And um, he'd been in and out of hospital. He'd always been a heavy smoker, so we had. And he'd been in and out of hospital a lot. And then um, my grandmother took me up to visit him one day. And I didn't know it, but this was the last time I was going to see my dad alive. And she brought us up individually. And I remember being there and um, his watch, he was not skinny. His watch had uh, rolled all the way up with his arm almost on his shoulder. Uh, and it broke my heart because it was, uh, I didn't know it, but it was the last time I seen my dad, uh, dad alive. Um, that watch, I fancy, found its way to me, but I've never been able to wear it because it brings back two, two uh, painful memories for me. It's upstairs. Everyone says, oh, you should wear it on special occasions now, but... I've just got a mental block. I can't, I can't even look at it, to be honest with you. But uh, mm. his death hit us really, really hard, so it did. Mm. And um, the, obviously when he died, my sister Margaret, she was only 13, 14. Um, we didn't have our mom, so uh, we thought, are we going to go into a home? What, what's going to happen to us? But on my dad's deathbed, my dad insisted that his family keep us and separate, uh, keep us all together in Glencairn around his family, my grandparents and aunties and uncles to look after us. Um, and when he died, uh, Shep, his dog also, uh, he was my best friend growing up. Um, I remember the uh, back in Ireland, we had the coffin at home for a few days before the funeral. And um, I remember going down uh, the night before the funeral and Shep used to lie under the coffin, crying his heart out, so he did. And I went down one night and just stood over it. And um, a couple of uh, weeks after my dad died, Shep died, Shep died also. We woke up one morning and he was uh, dead. The fat said he died of a broken heart. I don't know if that's the case. Wow. Um, this is your dad's dog, isn't it? That, sorry, that, that's my dad's dog. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was always at my dad's and my side, you know what I mean? Even when we carried the coffin down the road, he was following the coffin, which was kind of heartbreaking, you know what I mean? Because wow. he ate dogs, you know what I mean? Um, man's best friend and all that. But, yeah, mm. it was a double whammy, losing dad and Shep at the same time. Uh, yeah. And uh, I still find it painful to talk about my dad's death, you know, because it's haunted me and, like, uh, it's left wounds and uh, scars that will never heal. Um, but um, after he died, we were split up among our relatives in Glencairn, and um, I went to live with my uncle Rob and my aunt Jackie, and uh, my brother and sister went to live with my grandparents, 
and then um, my um, other sister went to live with another uncle. Um, but at the time, <clears throat> Rob was in jail. <laughs> he was a rascal, so he was always in trouble. Your uncle was in jail. Yeah, he was in jail. He was, he was always in trouble with a place or, uh, with women. <laughs> he, the, he was a good-looking bloke, so he wasn't. He knew <laughs> All the girls in Glen Carmen were queuing up to get at him. <laughs> right. His wife wasn't very impressed with that, I can tell you. <laughs> and then, and then, like, was it about this time you you, you started rioting? Um, yeah, I was writing poetry and doing other stuff around that time. But I, I was about 13 or 14 at that time. Um, but as I say, Rob was in jail, so I went to live with uh, other people in the, in the estate, uh, Alistair and Betty, and um, that was... Not- oh, I hate them. <laughs> I hate them. I they, Those are the worst characters in your entire book. I know. Absolute, oh, I don't use the word hate lightly, but they sounded awful. Oh, they were, and uh, I've had so many comments on Twitter and on my blog about them, you know. Uh, at the time, I just wanted to uh, get a gun and blow his head off. <laughs> that sounds brutal, but I needed love and um, uh, caring, you know what I mean? And he was an absolute bully, and he made my life hell, you know what I mean? So, uh most people who read the book, uh, most people who've read the book, are not fans of ours. <laughs> no, no. So, so when you when, when we talk about you going going off and, and, and writing as a, as a young lad, mm-hmm. like how old were you when you had your first petrol bomb in your hand? Uh, probably about twelve or thirteen, because we used to have riots all the time. It depended on what the political situation was at the time. Um, but uh, during the hunger strikes in the early eighties, uh, late seventies, early eighties, there was a lot of rioting going on in Belfast, and um, we used to go down. We, uh, my sister lived in uh, the Woodville, and it was uh, very near Ardoin, which is one of the most uh, staunch Republican areas in Belfast, and. Uh, First of all, we'd just go down, we'd throw sticks and stones and bottles at each other and that. And um, they'd, they'd, they'd be doing the same. We'd be calling them or- Fenian bastards and they'd be calling us orange bastards. And like, just kids, you know what I mean? And then our parents or uh, our guardians would come out and tell us to come on in for your dinner. And we'd say, okay, we'll be back in a half an hour. We'll have our dinner and then we'd come out and start it again, you know. Uh, but as we got older, it got uh, more violent, and uh, with the petrol bombs and the rioting and that. Anytime uh, back then, anytime there's a big political situation, I mean, take the hunger strikes for instance. Every time a hunger striker died, the nationalist committee would go crazy, and they'd come out and they'd start rioting about it. And the Protestants, uh, especially in the interfaces with the Catholic and the Protestants, collided. Areas collided. We'd come out and we'd start rioting also. And the police and the army, God love them, they were always caught in the middle of this of the war trying to keep us apart from, like, killing each other. And um, we'd have petrol bombs, and uh, the other guys would make petrol bombs, and we'd throw petrol bombs at each other, and there'd be rubber. It was very violent. You know, a lot of people were shot and killed, you know what I mean? Because you were given – you were starting to be groomed at this stage, weren't you? You young kids were being groomed to join a loyalist organisation, weren't you? Yes. This is early – as a 12-year-old. Uh, subtly, yeah. I mean, it, it, it kind of happened gradually, you know. I mean, it wasn't uh, – they didn't – it was part of parcel going up where we did, you know. What I mean? Right. So we, were both, we were being drawn into that sort of environment, so we were. Um, but we loved So you'd be – You'd be going into these riots, and and yeah. and you'd have like a scene. You'd have someone from the UDA would be giving you uh, a whole lot of petrol bombs. Yeah, is yeah. that right? Yeah, as I say, and uh, if they were moving guns or doing something else, and they wanted to divert the police, they'd say, "Go and kick up a riot, boys." So we'd just go and start throwing petrol bombs at the Catholic kids, and they'd throw the petrol bombs at us and stones and bricks and. Um, 
it sounds bad, but we used to love it as kids because it was pure entertainment for us, you know what I mean? Even though it was very, very dangerous and people did get killed and hurt. I mean, once I was hit with a petrol bomb, I was, I was walking a girl home and um, I walked right through a riot as it was happening between the Catholics and Ardoin. And one of my mates who was rioting, he threw a petrol bomb and it hit me on the arm. And I, I was jumping up and down trying to put the uh, fire out. And instead of trying to help me, he kind of shouted out, quick, get more petrol. Chambers is going out. <laughs> and to the laughter of all my mates and that, the humour was, humor was very black, uh, dark back then, basically. But it was just part and parcel of where we lived, you know what I mean? Um, and um, and <laughs> it sounds crazy, but I look back at it now, it's like, uh, that wasn't really me. But back then, I, I really enjoyed a good riot. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and at about the same time, when you started to join the UDA and, and, and you were sworn in, was that about the same time you became a mod, didn't you? And as I said, I've still got no idea what a mod is. But, uh, but, but that was around about the same time, wasn't it? It was, yeah, yeah. Um, as we grew older, I mean, and uh, the mod movement kicked off. The Jam, you've heard of the Jam, haven't you? Basically, the Jam were part of the mod revival, uh, my favourite band of all time, basically. Um, but I started getting into the mod movement around the same time. I started um, getting involved with the paramilitaries. It was just that tribal community we lived in. It was almost like being in the mafia, you know, when you got to a certain age, your family, who they were connected with, you joined that paramilitary group. Yeah, I started getting into the mod movement around the same time, which is complete contradiction because I was hanging about mm. Catholics and I was going with Catholic girls and all. And yet some of the guys that I joined the UDA with, you know, they would be gone, uh, go on to become killers, you know, in the, in, in the various loyalist paramilitary groups. I abhorred all the sectarian killings, but um, yeah, my life's always been full of contradictions. Or as yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? And you mentioned just before that you um, you, you started going with Catholic girls. Yeah. yeah. Um, as you said, is a big contradiction. Um, and there was one incident in particular in the book yeah. where you woke up in a spot that you shouldn't have woken up in. Can you tell me that story? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I used to go to uh, all the mod discos in Belfast, the Delta and the Abercorn. And uh, one night I was pilled up and I met this gorgeous, sexy wee girl, mod girl. And um, she came on to me and um, she said, if you come back to my place, we can have a really good time. You know what I mean? So I didn't need a second invitation. And we jumped in a taxi. I was spaced out. I was stoned, so I wasn't half pissed. So I didn't know where I was going, basically. And uh, I went back to her place, and uh, I won't give you any details, but we had a lot of fun that night. <laughs> well, I can remember. <laughs> and uh, the next morning, uh, I, I woke up, and she had left for work. So she had, so I spent staggered into the kitchen and had something to eat. And then I opened the uh, curtains, and to my absolute horror, I realized I was in Davis Flats which uh, is a, 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 an iconic uh, f uh, flats in the bottom of the Falls Road where lots of people have been killed, uh, controlled by the uh, Republicans completely, and uh, probably the most... So, so it was a place where a lot of Protestants have been killed and it was a Catholic-controlled building it, that a Protestant should not, under any circumstances, be near, no. let alone in. No, no. I mean, it's, it, there was probably nowhere more dangerous in the whole of Northern Ireland for a prod or a Protestant like me to wake up and look out the window and find I was there. Um, lots of people have been killed and murdered there, and lots of the army and police and that. Um, so, uh, yeah, so when they realised and it not hit me that I was up there, I said, what am I going to do here? So I had some breakfast and um, I, I, I basically I got myself out of there as fast as I could and went into the town and had an Ulster fry for breakfast. 
but often I put myself in situations that got uh, another time I was at a party up the Antrim Road, which is also a Catholic area. By this time, I was mixing with Catholics and uh, drinking with them and doing drugs with them and going uh, uh, on parties and all that with them. And um, I was at a party one night and uh, all these provies, we provies, young IRA men came in. Uh, so a, provies are young IRA people. Yeah. So they're Republicans, they're Catholics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the enemy. The enemy, yeah, definitely of the pros. <laughs> and they come in, and they started questioning everyone, so they did. And I had to lie through my teeth. Uh, I said I was a Catholic from Monastery, uh, which was half true because uh, my sister was living down there at a the time, and it was a mixed street. But if they had to uh, find out that I was a Lordist or a Protestant, they'd have probably beat me to death or taken me outside and shot me, you know what I mean? And I was often putting myself in stupid situations like that, you know what I mean? But I was just uh, at that age, you know, I thought I was young and immortal and and yeah. nothing stopped me from having a party, you know? Because that happened both ways, didn't it? Because there was a situation in your book where, where you were um, staying with your, your friend, um, a female friend who had a Catholic boyfriend. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, Lizzie was a girl from Glencar, and she'd uh, gone with this guy called Sean. Um, when we were young, we started sniffing glue, um, and Sean and his friends, we were introduced to them, uh, introduced to them via Lizzie, who was uh, a bit of a mod girl from Glencar, and he didn't mess with her, you know what I mean? And her family uh, weren't happy with her going with a Catholic, but um, she had the attitude, F you, I'll do what I want, you know what I mean? She just didn't give a shit. Um, but Lizzie was going with this guy, Sean, and um, he was a Catholic guy, and they'd had a baby together, and sadly, um, they'd split up because of sectarian um, difficulties, you know, just uh, especially when you're living in Glencairn, you know what I mean? And But Sean used to come up to the house and uh, to see his baby son all the time, and we used to go around, me and my mate, uh, Billy and that, and we'd sit with him smoking, drinking, glue sniffing, and just chatting away. And Lizzie had been warned by the UDA to stop bringing Sean into the estate. Um, but one night we were all there, all sniffing glue. And next minute we heard this banging on the door. And we are like, good God, who can it be, you know? Because uh -oh. <laughs> when uh, in an estate like Lancome, when you get a bang on the door that time of night, you know, it's not a friendly call. And um, Sean, you know, he looked terrified, you know what I mean? And he wanted to go out the back door. And we said, there's no point, we're going to be around the back. And um, he went and opened the door, and it was Mackie, who we knew as one of the uh, leading lights in the U young UDA in Blankhorn, uh, and he had connections with the older guys. And uh, basically, he came in, and he said, Lizzie, I'm sorry, but we've been told that Sean's here, and we're going to have to deal with him. And I know it's brutal. And I said, we're going to give him a beating, uh, regardless if you like it or not. Um, <clears throat> and basically, they brought Sean into the front room and demanded that we go and sit in the kitchen. But they beat the shit out of him, so they didn't give him a hiding. And um, we listened to it for 10, 15 minutes. And then Mackie came and he said, I'm sorry, Lizzie. Um, but uh, he was probably the best thing that's ever happened to you. But because of the situation, you know, we had to deal with him. Uh, and he meant it too, you know what I mean? Such was the uh, state of play in Northern Ireland. There was no room for empathy wow. or anything. It was just brutal. How have your views changed now towards Catholics? Uh my views changed um, from 16, 17 onwards. I started dating Catholics and uh, uh, hanging about with Catholics. Uh, and I got made many, many Catholic friends and that. Um, I think as a child, you know, I mean, you're growing up in that environment and um, you're, you're, you're kind of um, entrapped in that um, tribal world. But as you get older and you move out, you start going to work in places and going to the town and that and other, you're moving out of that tribal environment. 
So when I was 16, 17, I started branching out and hanging about with Catholics and mixing with Catholics. Uh, and gradually I came to realize that they weren't actually any different from me, you know. I'd been growing up to believe that they had horns and they were smelly and they uh, got down their hands and knees and prayed to the Pope every 10 minutes, you know what I mean? But they weren't like that at all. So it took me a while to realize that. But once I realized that, you know, my attitudes changed completely. Uh, and as I got older, you know, I, I based my political, uh, my, my uh, opinions on uh, politics and humanity shown to others. Looking looking at your um, your relationship with your mother, mm-hmm. because she, it, when did she come back into your life and, and how was that? Because you only had a short space of time really in the space, in, in the scheme of things, you only had a short space of time with her, didn't you? Yeah, we did, yeah. Um, well, um, as, as we've already spoken, uh, the reunion was uh, uh, instigated through the letter that we got from Philomena in America. And... Um, after I'd read the letter and uh, and phoned Philomena, Philomena said, I'm going to get your mum to call call you. And uh, I was like, yeah, okay, you know what I mean? So I sat about for a few days. And the day that my mum was supposed to, I was walking on eggshells. I couldn't do anything. And I sat by the, by the phone for about four hours because uh, I was about to hear the voice of the woman who had you know, walked away from us all when, when we were much younger. How old were you at this stage? I was 25 uh, when, when she... 25, 25, 26, and uh, mm. I was living in London at the time. Uh, and when the phone rang, I, I almost jumped through the roof, you know what I mean? I didn't know what to expect or anything. And um, I answered the phone and she said, hello, is that John? I said, yeah. And she goes, it's your mum. And then we both just broke down, you know what I mean? Uh, and I, I thought, God, she's still got a Belfast twang, even though she's been in England all this time, you know what I mean? she got a Belfast twang. And um, we talked and we talked, and uh, I noticed that she kept putting coins, and I kept hearing coins going into the phone box. Uh, back, you don't hear that these days, but back in the back in them days, you had coins. And I thought that's strange. And I said, "Are you in a phone box?" And she said, "Yes." It's probably better this way. And then I realised she didn't know me at all, apart from the fact that my name is John Chambers. I could be some mad sectarian killer, you know what I mean? She knew nothing about me, about my name is John Chambers. And she was just trying to protect herself. She was nervous, you know. So she didn't know who you were. Mm-hmm. She didn't know if you were... Uh, so she was a Catholic, you were a Protestant. She knew you were John Chambers, but that's it. So she was dialing from a payphone yeah. to protect herself in case you were some sort of ultra loyalist murderous <laughs> uda member yeah. shank hill butcher <laughs> hunting down a catholic woman living in london yeah that's a scary way to put it but yeah that's basically how she felt and uh she's probably right to feel that way because i mean at the time the troubles were still very much going and uh every day the news is full of people being killed and murdered you know in the most brutal fashion and uh so she was very, very suspicious, and um, the, the the trust between the Catholic and Protestants back then was rock bottom, you know. Uh, um, you know, especially in the uh, my mum's family were from the Falls Road, and we were from Shankill and Glencairn. So uh, they, they were both, you know, completely immersed in the culture and traditions of their own side. Um, but my mum, she'd uh, she chatted away to us, and I realised that she was on a payphone. I said, well, "Where are you phoning from? Payphone?" And she's, uh, "Well, it's probably better this way." And that kind of saddened me, you know what I mean? So I thought, "God, you know, she's frightened of me. You know, she's timid." She, you know. But um, we talked a lot and cried a lot down the phone. And um, uh, I remember the first thing I asked her was, "Did she have any other children?" Because um, that had always haunted me. You know what I mean? 
uh, I'd have probably been jealous of, uh, if she'd have turned around and said, yeah, I'd other children, you know what I mean? Because she hadn't been there to look after us and raise us. Um, and that would have made me jealous. Um, but um, she invited me and my brother up, up to visit her. And um, this is around um, 95, I think it was around. And it was January. And it was freezing cold. It was snowing. And I remember me and my brother... Um, my brother was younger when my mum disappeared. He had no memory of her whatsoever. He was uh, 12 months old or something. And um, she was only a name to him. He knew nothing about her. So he probably had it worse than any of us because my sisters were older and they remembered my mum. I only had that one one image of her. Um, so he'd come to London to live um, around the turn of the 90s. Um, we, 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 we spent a lot of time together and socialised together. And he agreed to come and visit mum with me and meet her. And um, so we went um, up to uh, Preston where she was living on the train. And uh, I remember he was sleeping on the train and I kept pulling the letter out and I read it for the thousandth time, you know what I mean? It just uh, it just blew my mind, the pure coincidence, what led us to the reunion. Um, and when we got to Preston, me and my brother stepped off onto the platform, and the platform was very busy. Um, Preston Station is generally busy. Um, but in the distance, um, it looked as if there was just one woman stood there, and I recognised her immediately, even though I'd never seen any pictures of my mum or I didn't know what she looked like. She was a spitting image of my sister Jean. Everything about her, you know what I mean? I immediately identified, identified this woman as my mother. She looked just like your sister. Spitting image of my sister, the same stature, the height, the hair, <laughs> everything about her. It was it was bizarre, you know what I mean? It was like my sister stood there in front of me, and she kind of run towards us, and we run towards her, and we fell into each other's arms, and uh, we hugged and we cried. <clears throat> and she said that uh, I was a spitting image of my dad, and everyone always said that I was a spitting image of my dad. And uh, I thought to myself, God, I wonder if she knows my dad's dead. You know what I mean? Does she know anything about what we've we've went through these last twenty five years? And uh, then she introduced who introduced us to her husband, Dennis. Uh, he was a beautiful man, and we accepted him, and he accepted us from the very first first time we met. And we, we built a beautiful relationship with Dennis. <clears throat> um, after that, um, she took us to a restaurant. Um, she didn't want to bring us back to her house because, once again, she was being cautious. She didn't know us. We could have been madmen, as you say. And we went to a restaurant, and we sat down, and we chatted chat for hours and hours. And I, I wanted answers, you know, in, the, in my mind of screaming out um, all these questions. But I didn't want to push it too hard because... Such a monumental occasion in my life because this my whole life had been dominated by her absence, and just to have her sitting in front of me, it was the most bizarre, almost spiritual feeling. You know, I mean, I can't describe the joy I felt at that moment. You know, and it was almost as if you know, now nah, I can like um, <laughs> settle down and live. You know what I mean? Uh, get out of my my destructive and chaotic lifestyle. But um, we spent a few hours with her, and um, we chatted, and we talked, and um, I, I, as I said, I wanted a question. I had, a, I had questions, and uh, I wanted answers, but I didn't want to push it too far because I didn't want to upset her. And we just met her, and I didn't know her. as, as She didn't know me. She, she knew nothing about us. And she was really vague about the details. Um, they come out, some of the details come out after uh, 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 on our second or third visit, but she was really vague. But um, 
she just explained that um, she was worried about the troubles and because um, there was a lot of rioting when my mum and dad uh, uh, separated and all, also because it was a mixed marriage and mixed couples had been killed in the troubles. And she said basically that she'd had a nervous breakdown and she'd, she'd walked away from Belfast. She said she wanted us to be with her, but my dad wouldn't let us stay with her. And um, she'd gone over to England. And not only had she walked away from us, she'd walked away from her own family. So she had no contact with her own family for 20 years also. So she just disappeared off the planet. You know what I mean? I didn't know that at the time because I didn't know any of her family. Um, and then she'd met Dennis up and off and, and she'd married him. And um, from that first occasion, you know, I mean, um, uh, we decided we're going to go up and spend a lot of time with her. So after that first occasion, um, she invited us up for Christmas. And uh, we had a wonderful time. It was the first time I ever got to spend Christmas with my mum, you know what I mean? And uh, we, we went, uh, uh, she had a, a barge, uh, and we went uh, on the barge all around the Lancashire canals and all. And we had a lovely time, but she still wasn't answering the questions, you know, the answers that I wanted. And to be honest, I never got a full answer out of her, you know what I mean? She just said she had a nervous breakdown. And um, But having said that, um, I asked her, did you know if my dad was dead? And she goes, yeah, because I came over to Belfast to try and get you back. And that blew my mind because when my dad died at my dad's funeral, um, for some bizarre reason, I started really missing her and thinking about her. Where is she? Where's my mum? Why isn't she here to look after us? And she said that when my dad died, she she had heard about this. I don't know. It must have been one of her family. And she had come over to Belfast to try and get us back. Um, and she was on the false road and, uh, you know, asking through the turmoil and the grief of my dad, Dan, I'm thinking about her and she was only two or three miles away from me on that day. And I, I didn't know that. And she'd gone to the uh, social services and, um, asked to get us back in that. And a Catholic, um, social worker came up to Glencairn to visit us. And I, I learned this many years later. My aunt Maureen told me that. He had went back and said, forget about them. They're living in a lawless shithole. You don't want to, you know, leave them where they are, basically. And she said that she'd tried on a few other occasions. But after a couple of meetings with the social services, this, that and the other, it was decided that we were best living with my grandparents and my dad's family in Glencairn. Um, at the time, we knew nothing about this. I didn't know that she'd uh, been in touch or the social services had been in touch. I wish I had done, you know what I mean? But mm-hmm. once again, that was a secret that the family, family buried and um but yeah yeah uh it, it struck me as very strange that um the day my dad died she was a few miles away from me and i was i was really thinking about it that day did you have a relationship with your mother in the end yeah we had a wonderful relationship me and my brother um we went up and visited her uh, all the time we went on holiday with her uh we built a beautiful relationship my sisters uh, they were older and they decided uh very early on that they didn't want to have a relationship with her and that kind of hung on me, you know what I mean? That, that haunted me. But they were older, and their attitude was that if they mm. got separated from their children, they would move heaven and earth uh, to find their children. And I understand that point of view. But with me, she was the only thing that would uh, sort of settle my restless soul, you know what I mean? And having her in my life uh, kind of made my life complete, you know what I mean? It's what I've been looking for for so many years. And uh, the gods smiled on me for once uh, with, with uh, how we, re, we were uh, reunited and we had a beautiful relationship uh, until her death, sadly. When she died, it must have been like you lost her all over again. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it was brutal. I mean, her husband died first, so we did. Uh, Dennis, we'd built a beautiful relationship with Dennis. He was a committed Catholic, a devout Catholic, and uh, 
I used to go to uh, uh, mass with him on uh, Christmas Eve and all that, and occasionally I'd go on a Sunday, you know. I was so happy that she'd found him, you know what I mean, because he was perfect for her. There was never any jealousy or bitterness on my part. I know my sisters were bitter, but with me, I made the decision when I met her that um, she was what I needed in my life. And if she didn't want to tell me the full story, then that was up to her. I didn't want to push it because I didn't want her rejecting me or, you know, yeah. walking away from me again. So I kind of accepted that. And um, two years ago, she got cancer and she'd been ill on and off. And um, I knew she was uh, seriously ill, but she hated hospitals. She'd never go to the hospital. She'd never go to the doctor. And eventually I insisted that she go to the hospital. And um, it was cancer, of course. And uh, they, they said that she, she'd only got six months to live. So it was kind of brutal, you know what I mean? There was no time really to get my head around it. But at first, I I, I was I, I, I thought we can fight this, you know what I mean? If she gets chemotherapy, I just didn't want to lose her again <clears throat> after spending so long away without her, you know what I mean? It was kind of brutal, and I'm going to lose her, but this time it's going to be permanently. But she was really stubborn, and uh, she said, no, I don't want to prolong my life. I want to die, basically. And that kind of put me into meltdown, you know what I mean? She wanted to go home and sit in her favourite chair and die, basically. And there was no, right. no budging her. She wasn't going to budge from that, you know what I mean? You've obviously got plenty of life left in you, John. Um, the, your book, um, you know, the last couple of chapters, very emotional ending. You personally, um, is John Chambers having happy, having a, a happy ending at the, at the moment? Uh, yeah, yeah. My, my, my life's all good, Andy. Thank you. I've got a beautiful wife and a beautiful family. Um, the book's doing absolutely amazing. I can't believe how well it's been received. You know, uh, uh, I've been a number one bestseller, and that was beyond my wildest dreams. You know, I thought maybe I'll get a couple. You know, <laughs> I've had uh, massive interest. You know what I mean from the media and all that. So it's really mm-hmm. nice to get a film deal out of it. I've had a few people say I'd make an excellent film. Right, <laughs> that's that's what I thought. I thought I I could I can see this being turned into a movie, and I wish you all the best. Um, you know, you deserve some luck you deserve uh everything that's coming to you and everything that's good that's coming to you and and i I just can't say enough how much i enjoyed the book and for anyone listening to this get yourself a copy of a belfast child by john chambers have a read of it and tell me you didn't cry in the last two (laughs) chapters because oh my tears amazing book well done and thank you so much Thank you so much. It's been an absolute privilege uh, to speak to you after reading your book and now hearing your story and meeting you in person. Uh, it's just been an absolute privilege. Just thank you so much and, and all the best. Oh, thank you very much, Sandy. Uh, you made it uh, quite an easy process, uh, but thank you very much. I enjoyed speaking to you also. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to hit subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. And I'd love it if you could leave me a review and let me know what you think about the interview. And if you like it, give it a share on social media. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.